Please stand for the reading of God's word. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. The grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our God stands forever. You may be seated. The context of these two verses we have spent a long time in. I I didn't look back on the calendar and try to figure out when we started in Romans, but for 11 chapters, the apostle has given a thorough presentation of the phrase that we have in here. What are the mercies of God? For 11 chapters, he has has taken every single objection in any kind of classification, and he has brought it forth, he's given it the strongest argument possible, and he has applied the gospel in each and every one. Now, for the last few weeks, he has been in, in chapters 9 through 11, 9 through 11, he is focused on really what do we do with the Jewish non-believers, those who should have known and don't know, those who would follow the apostle around and try to undo all of his good work. What do we do and how does that work with God's promises? And so um, what we find now from 12 to the very end is the apostle taking the theology of those first 11 chapters and saying, oh, now church, how will you live amongst each other. What will be, uh, what, what will be the ethos of that church? What will be its character? And, and, and it's, it's very imperative that we do that. We, we first have theology, right? We, we, I talk about this all the time. We have theology uh, before we have conduct, creed before conduct, belief before behavior, Right? So those first 11 chapters, we wouldn't get to chapter 12. I would never start a preaching series with a new body of believers and say, hey, we're just going to kick it off this morning from Romans chapter 12. Right? It, 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 it's all connected. Belief and behavior. Think about this. Uh, those of you who are members of Three Rivers, you took five vows. And a couple times a year, the Lord blesses, we get to, do, we get to have people come up and take those vows uh, if they're being baptized or they're joining our church. Um, but the vows in, in a PCA church reflect this same thought. What do I believe and how should I behave? What do I believe? The first vow. Do I acknowledge myself to be a sinner in the sight of God? Do I deserve his displeasure? Am I without hope except in his sovereign mercy? What do I believe? Number two, do I believe that the Lord Jesus is the Son of God, and He alone is the Savior of sinners. And do I personally receive and rest upon Him alone for salvation as He's offered in the gospel? Creed. The next three, conduct. Number three, do I resolve and promise in reliance upon this grace that I've just expressed that I believe and and the Holy Spirit that I will endeavor, that I will purpose myself to live as becomes the followers of Christ amongst this community. Because I've said this is true. I will endeavor, always relying on the Holy Spirit and upon His grace, but I will endeavor to live, to go forth in a life that shows I follow Christ. 
Fourth, do I promise to support the church in its worship and work to the best of my ability? Will my behavior support the work of the church? Number five, will I submit myself to the government and the discipline of the church? And will I promise to study its purity and its peace? So um, what you'll find in this section, Romans uh, 12, all the way through 15, at the end there's these personal greetings and warnings, um, which I think will time just perfectly with kind of April 7th, um, my final greetings and warnings uh, in, in some sense. Um, what you find is Paul is always doing this. He is, he is putting belief and behavior. Um, and, it, and it absolutely has to be that way for us. You know, last week I talked about uh, just the, the intellectual, contextual study of the scriptures without knowing what they are, but treating them just maybe as some, some document or, or, or something to, to learn and study without understanding the implications spiritually uh, is, is damaging and it's wrong. Paul puts all of his theology into behavior. But secondly, what we'll find as we work through this is um, I think I found 18 different, almost direct quotations from the teachings of Jesus. Right? So as, as Paul talks about how are we going to live as believers, how are we going to live as becomes the followers of Christ, he is constantly going back and forth to the teachings of Jesus. It's not some separate ethic. He said, I've laid the groundwork of the gospel, and now we'll follow the ethical teachings of Jesus. For instance, in chapter se- in verse 7, we'll be there next week. Bless those who persecute you. Doesn't that sound familiar? Bless and do not curse them. Doesn't that sound familiar? It's the Apostle Paul taking the words of Jesus. Bless those who curse you in Luke chapter 6. And so that's what we'll find in this section. But chap- verses 1 and 2 really do set up um, the sermon. I- I've called it the Transformers. Uh, it, it really does set up how then will we live? How then will we apply these things? And what are we to expect in this Christian life? You see, your salvation, your coming to Christ, is, is, it's just, just the start. You know, it's just God grants by Spirit just enough faith to believe. And often it's just the Spirit finally showing you the filth of your own sin and the failures and your inability to save yourself. And you come running to Him. But now it starts. This, this adoption into His family starts. And it's this process. And I'm telling you, one of the greatest joys as a pastor is to see that process unfold. Uh, the Lord gives light into seeing uh, this growth, what we call a growth in grace, because that's, a, that's exactly what it is. It is a growth in grace. And so um, he will lay this out. But verses 1 and 2 really give us a, a, a sense of how that is going to happen. How will we be transformed? And the truth, oh human being, is in this life, you really will have two options. You will either, as you go about life, you are are not sitting in a pond, in a boat, right? You are in a river. Your life is in a river. 
You're not just sitting there like nothing's going to affect me, nothing's going to change me, I'm, I'm, I'm good with me. No, you are in a, a river. And what the apostle will say here is you have these two options. You will either be conformed into the image of the world or you will be transformed into the image of Christ. There's not no, there's, there's not no. How long have I been in Oklahoma, y'all? There ain't none. There is not a status of a Christian that's just going to sit and think, I've learned what I need to know. I don't need to be with the church. I don't need to have community. I am good with me. That will be conforming to the world. You will. There are two options in life. You'll be conformed to the world or you'll be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You are going to be conformed to look more like the world and to accept the world and its values and its systems or more like the Lord Christ, our Savior. We are under a constant pressure to conform to the patterns of this world and a Christian must set their mind on the mercies of God. The ethics, beliefs, strategies, programs of the people of God are under the constant pressure to conform. But only the gospel applied to all of those things will transform. And so in these two verses, he is clear really about the people he is addressing. He presents really the grounds and and really the the, the nature of that appeal. First, uh, the people. Verse 1a, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers. Now that word brothers when i was a little kid so i've been a presbyterian before i was born i was uh you know i was uh, preconceived as a presbyterian right so i mean i just grew up with this frozen chosen reform chauvinism whatever you want to call it you know that was me so you know even as little kids in third grade fourth grade all my little baptist friends that would say brother joe told me this i'd always go brother joe brother joe who's this brother oh that brother hey brother i i i always just thought it was cheesy until I got older and had a brother. I asked my brother to pray for these weeks for us as a church. My brother Jonathan, that rascal, you guys have met him probably. Uh, you know what he did? He's like, do you need me to come out? I mean, right away, do you need me to come out? He's in the middle of these big business deals trying to build this stuff, and then he's like, you need me to come out? How amazing that in chapters 9 through 11, the apostle is is putting to the Roman church, there is going to be a tension between the Jews and the Gentiles. And he is laying out in the, in the presentation of his gospel, how will a Jew receive a Gentile? How will a Gentile receive a Jew? How, how, how will this work out? And in so doing, he has laid the groundwork for all of us. How will we deal with people of a different political party? How will we deal with people of different ethnic background? How will we deal with people who disagree on how the economy and the government should run? How will we deal with that? God, through his gospel, will make you family. And so he has been very specific. Here's what the Gentiles need to do. Here's what the Jews need to do. And he comes to verse 12. And he says, but now I appeal to you, brothers. You are now the people of God. You are no longer defined by how you were born. You are now defined by the gospel of grace. And it is only this gospel of grace that will bring people together, uh, not by in some way erasing their race, their gender, their ethnicity, but by superseding it 
making those difference, not prideful identifiers, but opportunities to flourish in the whole range as we bear God's image to the world. They do not cause conflict in the church. They're not to cause conflict in the church, but to result in praise. Sometimes people ask me what was my favorite Sunday thus far at Three Rivers. I wonder if you guys know this. Carmen used to live right over here, a few trailer houses down. Remember Carmen? Little baby Ayana, cute as a button. Ayana born in a toilet, right? I get a call as a pastor. I'm like, that's not what you expect. You don't take a class on that. Like, what do you do when you get a four o'clock call and a lady's delivered her baby in the toilet? You know, that's seminary 501, right? What do you do, right? You know, uh, they've moved. Um, she doesn't mind me telling this story. She told everybody this story. Every time they visit, she tells everybody this story, right? I get a call from the brother. Hey, baby's in the toilet. Sister's in there. There's blood everywhere. What do I do? I'm like, not call me. <laughs> right? <laughs> Have you called 911? He's like, yeah, they're on their way. I'm like, oh, okay. Right? I think really my favorite Sunday was the Sunday after that. Our buddy Scotty was greeting people. I'm over here talking to whomever, and Carmen comes with her three, four-day-old baby, walking through the door, and I'm like, oh, now she's going to tell her story to this guy, and I watch his face, and he's like, (gasps) (laughs) so, so big. But you know what I loved? Here she is, and she's sitting next to Ashley Couch, and I'm, and I'm, and I'm like, you, you have, you have a person that hasn't finished high school sitting next to the new OB doctor in town and their sisters. Amongst all the things that could separate a people, where you live, what you know, your level of education. It's one of my favorite Sundays. I sat back there and I just thought, God be glorified. God be glorified in providing a place for this single mom to come and be loved on by a church that has folks with more degrees than a thermometer. Brothers, the Apostle Paul, with great excitement, looks at the Roman church and says, now I am appealing to you because you're no longer Jew, Gentile, slave, or free. Boss, employee, male, female. You're brothers. And, and the rest of this is going to explain how, how do brothers get along, right? Person who's been maddest to me in my life, my brother. Right? Person who's hurt me the most in my life, maybe my brother. Person who I've hurt the most in my life, definitely my brother. Right? What have we brought together? And so, for the apostle, what an amazing blessing for him. As he gets to 11, he says, Now, now this divide, this wall of hostility, he says, has been abolished by the power of the gospel. It's in fact what the gospel does. If you are the people of God, you must fight against any other identifier or identity that would bring disharmony with the brothers. In Colossians 3, he says these words. Here's there's not a Greek or Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, or free. But Christ is all and in all. So brothers have the same life calling. 
calling as brothers and sisters as we looked in our membership vows to be holy, to be committed, to be humble, to be loving, conscientious, to be the people of God. That's the people he's talking to, and that's the people you are, and the people you are to strive to be, and what the church is to be in God's sight. He goes on in verse 1 to give us now the basis. What is the basis? Well, he uses the word, therefore, and you know that's just one of those wonderful words. It's this connector. Whenever you read it, what do we say? We see what it's there for, right? Therefore, because of all this truth that I have expounded in those first 11 chapters, therefore, brothers, live in view of God's mercy. These brothers have been joined by the mercy of of God. It is the basis of all the ethical instructions that will follow. And he had, that's why he's taken the majority of the letter to give us that idea of what the mercy of God is, right? Think about chapter 9. He says, Moses, God says to Moses, I'm going to have mercy on whom I have mercy. I have compassion on whom I have a compassion, that it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. 11, chapter 11, last week, just as you, he's speaking to the Gentiles, before they're all brothers, just as you, at one time, were disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he might have mercy on all. Probably a better translation would be mercies. Therefore, brothers, in view of God's mercies, he is going to instruct us in holiness. He has given us his son. He has justified that family, that brothers. He has adopted them. He has sent their Holy Spirit. But brothers and sisters, there is no greater incentive to holy living than the mercy of God. You cannot allow any other motivation to rule your obedience and holiness above the mercy of God. Right? Um, God's mercy is it's the ground we stand on. It's the air that we breathe. It's the bodies he's given us. All of that, all of everything that does exist in heaven and in earth speaks of God's mercy. There is no greater incentive for holy living than, than this view, this understanding, this rational thought towards the mercy of God. And I want you to remember that because as he gives us these instructions for a holy life that will come later just in verse 2, this, this holy life, um, I, I want to encourage you to, to, to think about that as the goal. The goal of my life is holiness. I never forget, my dad used to say, I don't know if it's true or not, but, but it was just something I, I remember he would say, you know when God asked Solomon what he wanted? Mark. What do you think would have happened if Solomon said, I want you to make me holy? He asked for wisdom, and, 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 and we talked about that. Wisdom leads to humility, which leads to holiness over the last couple of weeks. But remember my dad would say that. What do you think would have happened if Solomon just would have said, oh, 
I've been given all of this. Oh, oh, God Almighty, will you lead me in holiness? Will you make me a holy man? Think about it for just a moment. I, I, I wrote this down, and sorry if this week I'm looking at my notes more. I've had a lot going on, and I've written a lot of stuff, and I want to say it right. Holy lives will spare us from heartache and loss and embarrassment. Holy lives will allow us to sleep in peace. I was joking with Heidi and Greg this morning. Holy lives will not require a good memory. Right? We don't have to keep track of the lies we've told to what people we've told it to. Holy lives will make our interpersonal relationships strong, deep, and life-giving. Holy lives will best bless our families, our churches, our neighbors, our co-workers, our bosses. But the greatest incentive for a holy life is the mercy of God. For a holy life does not guarantee ease. A holy life does not guarantee material or physical blessings. But it pleases our God and it should please us. A holy life isn't easy, but it's far superior to the alternative. You choose the hardship rather than the hardship surprising you with such a heavy cost that it threatens to crush you. Holiness has two meanings in Scripture, and often they're, they're, they're really used both together. It's to be pure, it's to be spotless, but it's also to be set apart, to be the sanctified, holy people of God set apart. So brothers and sisters, the grace and the mercy of God, far from encouraging or condoning our sin, it is really the spring. It is the foundation of our sanctification and our growing in godliness and holiness. Our whole lives as the people of God must be plugged into the IV of God's mercy. It must just be what gives us life and hope and meaning. The moment we turn to self-reliance, the moment we turn to our self-righteousness in any area of life, however so small, it's the moment where the nurse clips the IV line to God's mercy. It stops flowing and we start a slow process. Still process of community disengagement, defensiveness, divisiveness, idolatry, and backbiting. So how is this going to happen? Well, the end of verse 1 and verse 2, he says this, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Don't be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. By testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Here's this process. He really says two things here. He says, first, the body. And it's sacrificial image here, right? Uh, your body being presented. But I want you to think of it, maybe not as much as a sacrifice as you would uh, a wedding, right? The church as Christ's bride. Right? You've been to a, a traditional wedding, right? As a groom stands in great anticipation, 
right? Hopefully they're not, the photographer's not in the way because the pastor talked to the photographer. But he's standing there and he's waiting. And the door opens and, and everyone stands and they turn to look and gaze upon the beauty. <gasps> the breathtaking. <gasps> Groom as they walk down. Presenting spotless beauty and holiness. Our God says now, you, the redeemed people of God, present your body. Yes, the physical flesh and blood, the body. Present it to God as a living sacrifice. Give it to him. You know, we talk about giving our hearts to Jesus. You know, I always like to say surrendering your whole self to him. It's not in inviting him into a certain portion of your life. Your body belongs to him. Right? It's all throughout the New Testament. Your body, your flesh, it belongs to him. And so the apostle says to them, uh, Romans living in a decadent society, the Corinthian society, you know, we always think it's worse now than it's ever been. No, no, it's, the world's been much worse than it has, than it is now. Present your bodies, he says, to him physical body you have been given is important to God. It is in His image. John Stott says, no worship is pleasing to God which is purely inward, abstract, and mystical. It must express itself in concrete acts of service performed by our bodies. We present our bodies as a living sacrifice. They have been made holy and acceptable to God by the work of Christ. And we present our minds to Christ. Your will be done, conforming or transforming. And so herein is the message in verse 2, right? Don't be conformed to the world, be transformed by the renewal of your mind. What you think about, what you dwell on. What is your mind going to do? The text goes on to say that you will test, you will discern what is the will of God. What is good and acceptable and perfect? How necessary for us is this teaching today when it is not necessarily our mind, it's our feelings. Our feelings controlling our mind. The conforming of a culture and a society saying this is what makes you beautiful or acceptable or valuable or safe or secure. The mind turned towards the will of God test to discern what is pleasing to him what is good to him what is acceptable what is perfect the people of God resting on the mercies of God are concerned with the will of God and we are becoming more and more like him I said it lines just just right with the teaching of Jesus. Okay, so the last couple of weeks, we've had all these illustrations, right? We talked about Israel being uh, the, the, the olive tree, right? The, the stump that the Gentiles were grafted on and then mm -hmm. the, the, the hope and the promise that, that the branches that were cut off would then be brought back in. Uh, Jesus in John 15, listen to what he says and how this aligns exactly with this teaching. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you. Okay, that's the mind. I'm listening his word. I'm, I'm memorizing it. I'm dwelling on it, meditating. Ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. 
That's what it's amazing is so many people just leave that verse right there. Right? I mean, it's just this idiotic, oh, hey, I can ask for God whatever I want and he will do it. But what's the context? By this, my Father's glorified that you bear much fruit. What do I wish? I wish to bear fruit. Oh, when I hear the voice of my Father, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been entrusted with little. Come and enjoy your Father's happiness. How is my Father glorified? What is His will? That we would bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father's loved me, I have loved you. Right? This is, this is the, the teaching, the doctrine. As the Father's loved me, I've loved you. Abide in it. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in love. These I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and your joy may be full. Brothers and sisters, our call is to be transformed and to continue to be transformed. That our minds would be focused. That the very air we breathe would be saturated with the mercy of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you uh, that you give us every reason to hope that behavior will change, that brotherhood will grow. Father, what a delight that you have said we, we will be able to glorify you. Oh, it's not just about us being rescued from the fires of hell, but Father, as a branch needs the vine for its sustaining life, We'll bear no fruit on its own. You have promised to abide with us. Your word would be with us. Your spirit would be with us. We might bear much fruit. May we, Father, have one eye always looking to your mercy and one eye looking towards the will of God in our lives. Father, I pray by the power of your spirit you would remove uh, difficulties and confusion your will is not difficult to discern. It is not hard to figure out. As those overwhelmed by your steadfast love and your mercy, as those adopted before we had done anything good or bad, as those eternally loved by the Father, may that mercy so fill us that our actions, our deeds, our words, Father, even our very thoughts, our longings, would bring you glory. And now, Father, as we take this sacrament, as we take this sacrament as we do every week, Father, we are taking and eating and drinking the mercy of God. It is sustaining our body in a small way, symbolic, that our bodies would decompose and fall apart without it. So our hearts and our minds together dwelling on what you have done and what you have given. Oh, Father, will you transform us more and more into the image of your Son? For your glory, we ask. Amen.